This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Uh, this is one of your rotating co-hosts, or something like that, Mike Fralick. I'm joined here with my brother, John Fralick, who's a general internist at Scarborough General, among other hospitals here in Toronto. John, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, so today on the Rounds Table, we're going to be doing Rapid Fire. That's uh, four articles for the price of one, or I guess two as we usually do it. And we're all focusing on cardiovascular trials, some really big articles out recently. So John, take it away. What do you have to share with us? So the first article we're going to talk about was published in New England Journal in March 16th of this year, and it's looking at transcatheter aortic valve replacement in low-risk patients with severe aortic stenosis. All right, so uh, what was the research question for this study? In this study, they wanted to say whether or not TAVI was safe and effective in patients with a low surgical risk. All right, and why on earth is that important for our listeners today? Well, we know that TAVI is indicated and in fact superior in the context of high-risk surgical patients if they have severe symptomatic AS. There's evidence that shows that TAVI is also non-inferior in an intermediate surgical risk group, but what we don't know is whether or not TAVI is safe for those that are deemed to be at a low surgical risk. Got you, and and for anyone who's unsure about TAVI, that's essentially a transaortic valve replacement, often referred to as TAVR, but I like TAVI better, uh, just like my brother here. So, all right, we got this randomized trial for low surgical risk patients. Some got TAVI, some got cardiovascular surgery. What was the study design here? So this was a randomized controlled trial. It was a non-inferiority study done multinationally. So countries included Canada. The patient population were those with severe aortic stenosis, and that was defined based on symptoms as well as the valve gradient, so an AVA of less than one centimeter, a mean gradient of greater than 40 millimeters of mercury. Patients were deemed to be at a low surgical risk. Now, this was a a little hard to define, but they said that less than 3% risk of death by 30 days of surgery, and this was determined by the multidisciplinary team at the trial. All right, cool. And what was the primary outcome here? So the main outcome was a composite of disabling stroke or death from any cause at 24 months. All right, that all sounds quite reasonable to me. And any big ticket items for us to be aware of in terms of the uh, statistical analysis? So the stats were a little complicated. They did use a Bayesian adaptive statistical method. Now, the details of that I'm not going to be able to explain. But refer to your local stats textbook. Essentially, they looked at a null hypothesis of whether or not TAVI would be non-inferior compared to surgery with respect to that primary outcome. Yeah, that, that sounds reasonable to me. I feel like between the two of us, we have sort of 20 plus years of postgraduate education, and I know pretty much nothing about Bayesian analysis. And what was the non-inferiority margin for this study? Just because that's always of interest. So the margin that they used was 6%. Okay, and that sounds uh, pretty reasonable to me. All right, so what did the patients look like that were included in the study? So 1,400 patients were randomized, 700 to each arm of TAVI versus surgical intervention. Uh, The patients looked the way that you would expect. About 74 years of age was the average age. 35% were female, 30% with diabetes, and 80% with hypertension. All right, so, you know, pretty significant burden of comorbidities. And what were the main results for the study? So the main result was that TAVI was found to be non-inferior to surgery with respect to the risk of death or disabling stroke at 24 months. Specifically, they found that 5.3% of patients in the TAVI group compared with 6.7% in the surgery group had that primary outcome. All right, that's certainly impressive. Um, Other important outcomes to tell us about? Yeah, so they did look at a few other things. TAVI was associated with a lower incidence of disabling stroke, AKI, bleeding event, as well as atrial fibrillation. 
is specifically for the AFib category. So within the TAVI group, 7% of patients developed AFib at 30 days compared with 35% of surgery patients. Other things to note, from a safety perspective, pacemaker insertion was higher in the TAVI group. So 17.4% of patients went on to require pacemaker versus 6% in the surgery group. There were also higher rates of aortic regurgitation in the TAVI group. All right, yeah, that certainly jumped out to me as well. And I think we'll talk a little bit about this, but before we do, any major limitations for us to be aware of? So there were a few limitations. Based on the timing of the trial, only 22% of the TAVI patients received the latest generation of the device. So whether or not that plays a role based on sort of newer changes to the device is, is unclear. As well, there was a pre-specified analysis that was performed at 12 months based on patient accruement. And so they didn't have a complete set of data at the 24-month follow-up. And so outcomes were imputed for those patients that didn't have complete data. And then I guess another consideration is that this was a short-term study, so we don't have longer-term data on the efficacy and safety. Yeah, that, that all makes sense to me. And, you know, we always have to be a little bit careful when we're looking at preliminary data. But still, those are some impressive results. So uh, take-home point? I think the take-home point here is that in patients with severe aortic stenosis and who are deemed to be at low surgical risk, TAVI was non-inferior to surgical intervention. Yeah, and the other take-home point for any medical students listening is uh, do not go into cardiovascular surgery, okay? You won't have a job. All right, and practice changing for you, John? Uh, I think, as you mentioned, we do need long-term data, but there was another trial recently published this month as well, Partner 3, which was a similar kind of uh, setup, which also shows that TAVI looks to be pretty reasonable for low-risk patients. All right, yeah, I'm certainly convinced. As we talked about before the recording, you know, if mom and dad, God forbid, if they ever have aortic stenosis and, and, and you know, need it, to be repaired, they're getting TAVI, that's for sure. They're definitely getting TAVI. All right, so next up, I'll be talking about an article also published in the New England Journal of Medicine entitled Antithrombotic Therapy After Acute Coronary Syndrome or PCI in Atrial Fibrillation. This is the Augustus trial, first author Lopez, published in March of this year. So what was this trial looking at? Uh, so the research question here, this was a two-by-two two factorial design. What on earth does that mean? Essentially, we're kind of answering a couple hypotheses at once. So here they were. The first question, for patients with atrial fibrillation who have acute coronary syndrome and or PCI, for that, should they be on apixaban or warfarin? Next question, in addition, should they be on aspirin or is clopidogrel alone sufficient? Now, why is this an important question? You know, I think anyone who is studying for the Royal College uh, knows that it's an absolute nightmare when you're trying to remember exactly which combination of antiplatelets as well as anticoagulants these patients should get. And there's conflicting evidence, conflicting guidelines. Do we give dual therapy, i.e. one anticoagulant and one antiplatelet, or triple therapy, one anticoagulant and two antiplatelets? So here's just a great question that's begging for a, a nice answer. Great. And take us through the study design. So this was industry funded. It was an international double blind or sort of double blind randomized trial. There was no blinding when it came to whether or not people were getting a Pixaban or Warfarin, but there was blinding in terms of whether or not they additionally got aspirin or placebo. And again, this is a two by two factorial design. The primary outcome was clinically relevant or major bleeding. Secondary endpoint was death or hospitalization and a composite of an ischemic event. Um, some pertinent inclusion criteria, of course these individuals had to have atrial fibrillation, of course they had to have either a recent acute coronary syndrome, either managed medically or with PCI, 
or they had PCI and insertion of drug-eluting stents, and they had planned use of a P2Y12 inhibitor. You know, what the heck is that? In this study, it was just Plavix uh, for at least six months, and some exclusion criteria were, you know, bad bleeding risk or bad renal disease. And I don't know if I have time to get into the 2 by 2 factorial design, but I'm going to try. So in a 2 by 2 factorial design, here are four patients and what four patients might get in the study. Patient one might get randomized to a pixaban and then to aspirin. Patient two might get randomized to a pixaban and then placebo. Patient three might get randomized to warfarin and then get randomized to aspirin as well. Patient four might get randomized to warfarin and then get placebo. So this is that two by two design. There's four different kind of groups of patients you get as a result in terms of what drugs they're getting. It sounds like a lot to keep track of. Uh, so what do these patients look like? So 5,000 total from 33 countries, uh, median age uh, 71, uh, one-third women, 90% uh, Caucasian, uh, median CHADS-VASC score of, of 4, and 37% had acute coronary syndrome and underwent PCI, and then a quarter were medically managed for their acute coronary syndrome, and 38% had an elective PCI. There was follow-up data for about half a year thereafter, and vital status was available for almost everyone. And I should mention up front that 17% of people randomized to aspirin stopped it versus 15% who got placebo. And then for the apixaban warfarin, the discontinuation rate there was about 13% and similar for the two. Okay. Uh, what were the main results? So the main results here, major bleeding occurred in 10% of patients that got apixaban versus 15% on warfarin, and the curve separated after about 30 days. Uh, that's the Kaplan-Meier curves. Within the apixaban group, 16% had a major bleed with aspirin versus 9% with placebo. You know, that's a big difference. And then some other things to be aware of is that patients randomized to apixaban had a lower incidence of death or hospitalization than warfarin. And we're talking 23% versus 27%. You know, that's pretty impressive too. But the one caveat is there were slightly higher rates of coronary ischemic events in patients who got placebo as opposed to aspirin. Okay. And were there main limitations to be aware of? Yeah, I mean, as I alluded to, this was unblinded when it came to people getting warfarin versus apixaban. And we know based on some pretty good evidence that warfarin is associated with higher rates of bleeding. So, you know, this could introduce a bias where we as the attending doc are more likely to be picking up on the fact this person's having a bleed and it might get coded accordingly because we know they're on warfarin and we expect that. Now, counter that with another limitation, and that's that the median percentage of time that people were therapeutic on their warfarin, uh, it was 59% of the time. And you know, what was happening the other 40% of the time, often they were below target. So that's pretty just humbling to see that in this, you know, randomized trial with so much work, energy, time going into it, still, those are the sort of rates of people being in the sweet spot for their INR. So that just begs the question, maybe the rate of bleeding is even higher if they were therapeutic all along. Yeah, fair. And what would you say the take-home point is from this study? Apixaban is your friend. Warfarin is your foe. It seems very reasonable for dual therapy, i.e., on an anticoagulant, as well as one antiplatelet agent following PCI or acute coronary syndrome, rather than an anticoagulant and two antiplatelets. Triple therapy, that seems like a little bit too much. 
Do you think this is going to be practice changing? Yeah, you know, it, it does, or it is practice changing in that it just provides much more confidence that dual therapy is likely the way to go in this patient population, especially if it's patients who we're seeing maybe a month or two post, you know, PCI and they're on triple therapy and they're coming in with like a maybe bleed type scenario, you know, here's a great opportunity to, you know, peel back a layer of the onion and, and discontinue a medication. All right, so uh, back to you, John. Uh, what is the next cardiac-related study you have for us? So the next study is called Effect of Catheter Ablation versus Antiarrhythmic Drug Therapy on Mortality, Stroke, Bleeding, and Cardiac Arrest Among Patients with Atrial Fibrillation. It's the Cabana Randomized Control Trial, published by Packer in JAMA in March of this year. All right, Cabana trial. I like the sounds of this. What was the research question here? The purpose of this study was to determine whether catheter ablation was more effective than conventional medical therapy in improving outcomes for atrial fibrillation. All right, and why is this important? We know that atrial fibrillation is the commonest tachyarrhythmia. There's some suggestion that ablation may in fact be more effective than antiarrhythmic medications in reducing episodes of paroxysmal AFib, but high quality data is limited. So the goal of this study is to really answer that question. Yeah, I'm sold. So what was the uh, study design for this? This was a randomized controlled trial looking at the use of catheter ablation versus drug therapy. So for ablation, they were specifically targeting the pulmonary veins. Physicians had to have pretty good experience, so at least 100 cases under their belt. Medical therapy was both rate control and rhythm control, but rate control had to be attempted first. These patients were 65 years of age or older, or 65 and younger, but with stroke risk factors. Everyone was anticoagulated for at least three months. Now, initially, the plan was to enroll 3,000 patients over three years with a primary outcome of all-cause mortality. But slow enrollment and lower event rates required them to change what they did midway through the trial. So they did a scheduled review and they actually revised the endpoints. The new primary endpoint was a composite of death, disabling stroke, serious bleed or cardiac arrest, and secondary endpoints were now that all cause mortality. Other considerations, so they looked for evidence of atrial fibrillation following randomization with an ECG event recorder. They did use a three-month blanking period whereby after uh, ablation or initiation of therapy, they didn't count atrial fibrillation unless it happened after that three-month mark. There was a separate Cabana study that's been published as well that looks on some quality of life data, but this was more focused on some of those outcomes that we talked about. This was an intention to treat analysis, and they did a couple of different sensitivity analyses as well. All right, cool. So it seems like we have a good old-fashioned randomized trial where you're getting randomized to ablation versus no ablation, but they weren't blinded. Is that right? Correct. Okay. All right. Good to know. So the patients that made it into the cabana, what did they look like? So 2,000 patients were randomized, 1,000 to ablation, but it should be noted that 102 of those patients did not receive ablation. And in fact, 45% of those ablation patients also received an antiarrhythmic drug at some point. There were about 1,000 patients in the drug therapy group. Now of these patients, 300 of them actually went on to receive catheter ablation as well. Another thing to note is that 11% of those drug therapy patients only received rate control, whereas 87% received rhythm control. The median age was 68, 37% uh, were women, 10% were of a racial or ethnic minority, 43% of patients had paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, and then comorbidity-wise, uh, pretty consistent with what you would expect. 80% of patients with hypertension, 26% with diabetes, 20% with coronary artery disease, and 10% with prior stroke or TIA. All right, interesting. So, you know, another study with a you know pretty heavy comorbidity burden patient population. 
and lots of crossover in this study. All right, but before I get ahead of myself, what were the main results? So the main result was in fact, no difference in mortality, stroke, bleeding, cardiac arrest among patients with ablation versus medical therapy. There was also no difference in all cause mortality between ablation and medical therapy. They did note that on a composite outcome of mortality or cardiovascular disease-related hospitalization, that this was 17% reduced in those patients who received ablation compared to drug therapy. Now, the main analysis was a intention-to-treat analysis, but they did do a second sensitivity analysis looking at as-treated populations. So amongst those who were treated with ablation, there was a lower mortality and improved primary endpoint compared to those with drug therapy, but again, this was in sort of a secondary analysis. Okay, yeah. And I mean, it is a very complicated result to interpret. There's also a fantastic JAMA abstract video by uh, Dr. Greg Kerfman, which sort of highlights some of these nuances. All right. And any major uh, limitations for us to be aware of? So there are some limitations to consider. Uh, there was slow recruitment, which resulted in a change in the primary outcome midway through the trial. As you already alluded to, there was a lot of crossover between the two treatment arms, and that is certainly going to play a role in treatment effect size. And then lastly, there were high rates of patient withdrawal from the trial, and this was slightly higher in the drug therapy group, and this may have also affected treatment effect size. So uh, what was the main take-home point here? The take-home point here is that catheter ablation compared with medical therapy was not associated with a reduction in this composite outcome of death, disabling stroke, serious bleed, or cardiac arrest. But it's important to note, I guess, that amongst those patients treated with ablation, there was no increased risk in mortality or increased risk in those other outcomes. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, there's also a signal of a potential benefit here. And I guess it depends on how much we want to focus on the p-value and also, you know, how much sort of statistical acrobats we want to go through to get at what might be the ground truth. So, yeah, it's I feel like the jury is still out here. But uh, practice changing for you? I mean, I think this is one study that is really important. Coupled with some of the findings from the quality of life data that's published in another trial, it does suggest that ablations at least know worse than medical therapy and that perhaps tailoring therapy to sort of patient-specific objectives and treatment goals could be very reasonable. All right, cool. So last up, back to me. This study was published in the BMJ in February of 2019 entitled True 99th Percentile of High-Sensitivity Cardiac Troponin for hospital patients, prospective observational cohort study. So what was the research question with this study? So for this question, it was, um, what is a 99th percentile of high sensitivity troponin for a whole hospital population? I see, and, and why was this important? Well, you know, the high sensitivity troponin is sort of the newest and fanciest of the troponin tests. There's a rumor out there that it was just created by a group of cardiologists that wanted more consults, but I can't actually support that with any data whatsoever. But what's important is that when you get this new lab test, the manufacturer provides you with the recommended 99th percentile. And maybe you're like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know I was using that information. Well, you were because your EHR system is going to flag values that are above this 99th percentile. And you might be thinking, well, well, like, you know, who cares? Well, acute myocardial infarction is defined in the context of an appropriate clinical presentation by a rise or fall in cardiac troponin with at least one value greater than the 99th percentile derived from a reference population of healthy individuals. So it is important. Absolutely. And what was the study designed for this? Um, so the study designed here was a prospective observational cohort study in the UK from June 2017 to August 2017. 
and quite literally every patient who showed up to the door of that hospital, so 20,000 consecutive patients who were having a blood test were just automatically included in this study and they had a troponin added on to their blood work. Anybody, didn't matter why. That's right, as long as you showed up and I guess you weren't a CC3, you were truly a patient and you had some blood work drawn for whatever reason, they tagged on a troponin to that blood test and the primary outcome here was let's just see what the distribution is. You know, let's see where is the 99th percentile of the high sensitivity troponin um, and is the lower limit of normal truly what the manufacturers say it is. What do these patients look like? So as mentioned, there was 20,000 of them. Average age was 61, 53% were women, 50% were outpatients, 25% inpatients, and of course the remaining 25% of patients were emergency room patients. And what did they find? So it's quite cool. So what they found was, you know, open up the, uh, you know, the box that the troponin test comes in, and what does the manufacturer say the sort of lower limit is? 40. But what did we see just based on the distribution of these patients? The 99th percentile was 296. It wasn't 40. So one in 20 patients had a measurement above 40. And in most patients, there was no clinical suspicion of an acute myocardial infarction whatsoever. You know, so one in 20 were having a quote unquote positive test. And then they excluded individuals who came into hospital because they had a myocardial infarction. And they also excluded individuals where the troponin was actually ordered by the physician. So, you know, maybe the physician was worried about something cardiac. So then when you looked at the 99th percentile in this 18,000 patients, it was 189. So still, you know, much higher than the manufacturer's uh, list of the lower limit. And then you could look at it, okay, so what was the lower limit just in outpatients? And it was 65. How about for the emergency room, 215? How about for the inpatients? 560. So really interesting stuff. And then they did a nice multivariable logistic regression analysis answering the question, all right, so who do we expect to have a value above 40, the manufacturer's lower limit? And individuals are more likely to have a higher value were uh, older individuals, if you were a man, if you had a decreased GFR, and where in the hospital you were. Very interesting. What were some of the limitations with this study? So uh, I'm not an ethicist, but I feel like the ethics here seems kind of questionable. I mean, the test results were not given to the patients or the supervising clinical team, regardless of whether or not the level was, you know, above the upper limit of normal or below the lower limit of normal. And I thought, I must be reading this wrong, but then I found the line in the manuscript, and I'll quote it, quote, we did not examine clinical outcomes because this was not part of our objective. Well, I mean, that's great, it wasn't part of your objective, but what people might have actually had a myocardial infarction and they just went to a different hospital the next day uh, and you would have missed that outcome. And the way they did look at people who truly had an MI, it was just based on the discharge diagnosis. So, you know, there are some important caveats here still. Interesting. Now, what do you think the take-home point is from this? Uh, treat the patient, not the troponin, I think. You know, I can think of countless patients who I've seen one not too long ago in good old Sault Ste. Marie. She was feeling perfectly fine. Okay, she had COPD and she was coming in with that, but there were no cardiac symptoms whatsoever. And then her troponin came back and it was markedly elevated. But then it was repeated and it was the exact same. And this just gives me a nice kind of, you know, refresher that just because 
the value comes back red doesn't mean it's necessarily indicative of an underlying pathological process. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, what do you think? Is this going to be practice changing? Well, as mentioned, I work in the Sioux and I work in St. Mike's, two hospitals where we use the old-fashioned troponins. So, nope, it won't change my practice. But it, it sure does remind me that, you know, even in the sort of old-school troponin value, that again, what's normal and what's abnormal, you know, you, you clearly have to take that with a grain of salt and think about the underlying distribution of these values just in the patient population that you're going to see. So that's it for the rapid fire. Now we'll get to the final segment of the show, Kieran Quinn's favorite part of the show, and I think probably mine too, the good stuff. So John, why don't you tell us uh, what has been catching your eye these days? Uh, I saw this on Reddit, and it's pretty fascinating. There'll be a link on the website, but for those lifelong learners out there, MIT has a free and open publication source of thousands of MIT courses. No cost, no sign up. If you want to study engineering, political science, biology, physics, go online. You can read through the courses. You don't get any credits for a degree, but you do get access to course material, video lectures, and some free online textbooks as well. All right, cool. I will take a look at that and I will tell you what I'm reading about a cool article from the New York Times entitled How to Deal with a Jerk without being a jerk. This is a story by Adam Grant and he has a great podcast that you should you, you should listen to if you don't already but just gave some very interesting anecdotes and advice on you know, how to deal with some difficult people in the workplace, as I'm sure lots of us have colleagues like this. So anyway, I'll, I'll let you read further and maybe you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Excellent. Well, thanks a lot for having me on again. As always, it's a pleasure and thank you, John, for joining us today. The Browns Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, Director of Quality and Evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in. <laughs>